All right, thank you. The next question comes from Josh Myers, and it's on focused intent, which we were just speaking about. In the last session I intended, I attended, I asked about throwing dice in order to train the focusing intent to increase the probability of rolling double sixes. I assume at least some portion of this skill would be transferable to other applications, since in general I would be learning to focus my intent. Once I get to a point where I can get a feel for how I can personally focus my intent effectively, how much of this skill is directly transferable to other probability-changing activities? Probably uh, most of it is transferable. Uh, learning to focus your intent is, you know, is a very general skill, and that general skill should apply uh, pretty much to other things. Now, what the variable that's loose here is your own uh, would be your own expectations or, or or what you bring to it from your mind. If you believe, if you get good, sometimes people get good at things that they do often. Uh, an example is uh, meditation. You meditate s sitting in a chair, then you get, you know, you say, well, okay, I've learned how to meditate. I sit in a chair, I close my eyes, I do this, I'm in a quiet room and I meditate, and you get very good to where you can get in a really good meditation state that way, and then you're someplace where you want to meditate, but there is no chair. So you try to meditate lying down, and you can't do it. It's just too hard. It doesn't seem to work. Well, you may have some of those things. What you've learned about meditation should transfer close to 100%. Most of it will. But you may have some connections, some attachments to what you're doing and the way you're doing it that don't transfer well, like the difference between sitting up and lying down. With one, you have confidence. You've done it that way a long time, and you're very confident that it'll work. The other one is, is new. Everything feels new. The, the, your physiology doesn't feel the same lying down as it does up, and you, you're not quite sure what you're doing anymore. And the, the signals that you're used to from the body relaxing and feeling heavier, getting warm or whatever, aren't quite the same because the blood flow isn't quite the same between the two. And So now you kind of lose confidence, and, uh, and it seems like it's very hard. But the reason, you know, and I say that it'll transfer almost 100%, it may take some time before that transfer takes place, I guess is what I'm getting to say. If you learn to meditate sitting up, you can learn to meditate lying down, but it may take four or five tries before that transfer takes place, before you kind of get in to the lying down feel and you get comfortable with that and you get confident with it. And then instead of it taking you a year to learn to meditate like it did sitting up. Now it's only a week to learn to meditate lying down because you you try it you know twice a day for a week. That's all it takes. So you really do get a 100% transfer, but my point is not necessarily immediately. You may have to adjust to the different situation and make sure you're not getting in the way with uh, a different process. So we get habituated to processes, and sometimes that makes the transition seem like it's not working from one to the other. But keep working with it, and you'll probably find that most all of what you've learned with intent in any process will work fine in any other process. The next question is concerning binaural beats and brainwave states. This is by Adam. 
I'm wondering which brainwave states, all states of consciousness, specifically correspond with what psi effects. In your research and studies, which brain states are activated when healing or remote viewing or exploring larger consciousness system? If one is wearing an EEG headset, is it possible to validate brain entrainment? Yes, if you're wearing an EEG, you can uh, you can see exactly the amount of energy you have in any particular frequency. Um, I guess it depends on on uh, you know how good your equipment is. You know, really cheap equipment may have very cheap output. You know, but uh, if you have equipment good enough to show the amount of energy that's in each frequency, you know, how much of your brain wave is in. Uh, you know, delta, how much is in theta, how much is in alpha, and so on, how much is in beta. So you, if you have a, something that will sort that out for you at what frequency, because at any one time, you probably have some energy in all the frequencies. It's not like your brain wave is always just at a single, you know, like it's always at, you know, 10 hertz. That's not it. Your brain wave is across everything. you got some 2 hertz, some 40 hertz, some 10 hertz, but you go into a meditation state, which then more of your brainwave energy starts to go into the 10 hertz because that's a, that's a relaxed state. So as you get real relaxed, the stuff that was scattered all over, now, now you see the peak over 10 hertz starting to grow and the other one starting to shrink. So you, get, you have frequencies in all, but it's the amount that you have, the relative amount you have that makes a difference. Now what we found in our research at the lab was that there wasn't a precise frequency associated with different paranormal events, but there was a range of frequencies that were associated with the ability to let go of your physical senses. Okay? And that's, that's kind of the key. You, the big thing in, in uh, an altered state of consciousness, I guess what makes it altered uh, in a productive way, is that it's no longer dealing with sense data. Okay, that's the that's kind of the first big envelope, and that happens primarily at a theta state, where you let go of your sense data, but you're still awake. Now, if you go all the way down to delta, all right, you've let go of your sense data, but you're unconscious. That's not that's not helpful. So the theta, you're still conscious but you've let go of your sense data. And that's typically where that happens. That's why the binaural beats, we, we tell people get something around 4 hertz because that's a theta state. And uh, 4 hertz to slightly less is a, is a good state where you can, where you can uh, do that. Now, you will find, depending on what you're doing, if you are engaged in, let's say, an out-of-body experience, and that out-of-body experience is involved in a lot of information exchange. So let's say you're talking to an entity, and you're talking to an entity about a pretty detailed subject. You know, it's not, a, it's not just, hi, how are you, but it, you're, you're trying to get some very detailed information, specific information, and you're getting that from this entity. What you'll find is that you first go into a theta state, and the energy from your EEG piles up into theta, more or less, then you, be, you interact with this entity, and now you're talking to this entity. Some of your EG 
will start to leak out of the theta. The theta state will still stay strong, but you'll see the alpha state start to light up a little more. And maybe a few of the other higher uh, frequencies, because that part of your brain that is, that is working on language and, and uh, you know, converting data into language and ideas, that starts to light up and take some of the higher frequencies with it. But theta is still probably dominant in that, you know, in that, that brainwave. But now what you're seeing is instead of all the energy being in just one area, like it's all theta or it's all alpha, so you have this one big hump at the alpha or one big hump at theta, you'll see a, a dominant hump at theta and then an alpha hump starting to grow up that's not as big. So we're starting to have, now your brain waves can be broken into two or three different pieces, you see? So you'll have energy at several of the, of the different bands. So that's kind of the difference. Uh, so you don't necessarily want to just get all your energy into the theta. It's a good place to start. But if you're wearing an EEG, you'll notice that as you get involved in things, depending on how much um, that requires your brain to process, you will get you will get some of your energy will go back under other you know, other frequencies that are more conducive to processing information rather than just relaxing and letting go of the letting go of the senses. So my answer is that it's it's complex. You know, it's not like here's this one brain, you know, wave state that you should be in, and that's the most perfect one for doing this. Depends on what you're doing, and depends on uh, you know how you know the the path and how you get there. So it should change based on what you're doing with your intent and with your mind. The point is, don't get into a a belief that you have to be in a foggy, almost a sleep state to be in a good altered state. You don't. Often when you get into that foggy state, you know, we define that because people start with the relaxation and let go, and I need to let go of this world. And how do we know how to let go of this physical world? By going to sleep. So we want to get close as we can to that border of falling asleep without falling asleep. And we get on that groggy, foggy edge of sleep, and we say, wow, that was really a deep, I was in a deep state. And we judge deep to be effective and deep and effective to be barely conscious. And now you can meditate, but you're only barely aware. You see, that's not good. You can be perfectly aware as you are now, engaged with me in this conversation and be in a really good altered state and not be connected to any sense data. You see? So don't get the don't get hung up on the belief that the that the best meditation state is one that is very groggy and and uh, fuzzy and and not clear. You want to eventually let that idea go altogether, and you want your meditation states to be just as clear as they are when you're wide awake. They're not foggy or 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 uh, you know nebulous gray kind of states, but they're perfectly clear states. You're just no longer attached to this physical reality. You're not processing sense data. You're processing data elsewhere. You see, and at that point, you're going to get more EEG up into the higher frequencies. But you're not processing sense data. So you can't do a one-on-one -on -one of exactly where's your EEG, you know, for your mental state. It's a more complex thing than that.
that uh, yeah, that really helps helps my understanding of how those kind of binaural beats work. And uh, I thought it's kind of interesting. One of the previous points you made about quickly switching between focus from this reality to the next is almost like a sine frequency with a high frequency pattern, you know, kind of the metaphor for your focus. It's just a, it's, you know, it's a, it's as in, a simple a thing as you could be, you, you know, all of us have a, an imagination. And with our imagination, we could instantly go imagine, you know, we could imagine something and then come back, right? That wouldn't be hard to do. You know, imagine, uh, you know, imagine what your, you know, wife is doing right now. You know, imagine what your parents are doing right now. Imagine, okay, we could imagine it. We don't care that it's actually right what they're doing. You know, we just imagine something, okay? See a picture of your grandmother. Poof, there it is, right? Picture of the grandmother, just that quick. You don't have to sit down and relax and go through all this thing to bring up a picture of your grandmother, do you? No, you can just do that instantly, just very quickly, you see? Well, it's the same thing. All you're doing is focusing your intent. You don't need to go through all those things. Well, when we do that with our imagination, that's not a whole lot different than, than if we do that, you know, uh, as far as changing realities. It's about the same way. You can change realities as quickly as you can bring up a picture of your grandma. So that's, it's just a, a focus on something else. That's that's how uh, you know that, that's how it is. You don't have to go through a big process. You just go out and get that data. It's all data. You see, we're talking about data streams here. So where do you get that data stream of grandma from? Well, you take that out of your memory. Well, you go get it. And now you're looking at that data stream, and there's grandma. If you really look at grandma and look at the the details of her face and her wrinkles and and you know all the rest of it, you know you can see it in pretty high res picture. Well, when you're looking at that high-res picture, you're really not paying a whole lot of attention to your senses and your sense data. Kind of starts to go away. You see, so you can see there's a. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You just uh, change your your focus, change your intent to a different data stream, and there it is. It doesn't require you to first get groggy. That's only the thing you go through when you're learning. When you're doing it for the first times, you know you you get groggy and you go, "Wow, I had a really deep state. That was great." And uh, then you find out that deep state's very limiting because there's not a whole lot you can do when you're really, really groggy. You know, you just you're groggy, so you want to be able to be alert. So the real key is letting go of your sense data, and if you can do that and be perfectly clear-minded, well, then you succeeded. If you have to get groggy and almost fall asleep to do that, well, you can do it that way, but then you're groggy. When your consciousness is no longer processing sense data, it's no longer processing this reality. That's what this reality is, is sense data. Right? That's what creates this reality in our mind, is the sense data. And when you stop processing sense data, you're not here anymore. You're free. Got it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. This really helps out. The next question comes from Josh. And 
Actually, the next two questions are on animals, which are very close to everyone. Um, Josh's question is on euthanizing pets. One of my dogs has had health problems her whole life, and now she has a growth in her bladder that they can't remove. At some point in the next few weeks or months, we might need to make a decision to put her to sleep. However, I'm extremely, I'm having an extremely tough time figuring out when that time should be. She is obviously affected by the growth via frequent urination attempts and her appetite is way down, but I don't know how to tell when or if she wants out and I would feel guilty about putting her to sleep too early or too late. What would your comment be? Well, that's a really hard decision to make, particularly for an animal, because you can't talk to the animal, you know, and, uh, you know, come to a mutual uh, uh, idea about when when is enough enough. Uh, you kind of have to make that with, uh, you know, by yourself without the animal's input so much. But you can get your animal's input from an intuitive side, and your animal is here just like you are to learn and grow. They have opportunities to make free will choices, and their quality of consciousness evolves or de-evolves based on the quality of the choices they make. So it's no different than you, other than you're much you're on a much higher fast track with a much bigger um, decision space than your animal is. Uh, your animal's limited in the decision space, but once that once that avatar, let's say your animal's a dog, I'll just make that up. Once that once that avatar dog is no longer productive in choice making to evolve, then there's really not much point in going on with that avatar. Okay? Now there may be some choices to make in dealing with infirmity and dealing with illness that are good choices, where you can learn from those choices, but then there's a point where it's just, you know, it's just pain. It's just keeping on, you know. It, the, the, the choices in it are kind of, are. You're, well, let me put it another way, your decision space gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So as long as there's enough decision space there to make good choices, then the animal still has opportunity to grow with this avatar. Once there's very few choices that it can make one way or another that, that seem profitable, then it's probably the animal's done with that avatar. The avatar's been used up. It's no longer an effective vehicle for growing and learning. And then that's a good time to go on to a different avatar. So I'd say you just have to guess at when, when your animal gets to that point. You see, when you think about a person, it's easier for us to understand people than it is to understand what dogs are going through or cats. With a person, if getting old may present you with challenges and decisions that are effective in helping you grow, um, the perspective you have to look at life through is much bigger because you've lived longer, you have more experiences. So that may be effective. But if you get to a point where your life is nothing more than dealing with pain, it's really hard to even keep a, you know, a, an idea in your mind because you have constant pain, and if you don't have pain, you're drugged to the point that you're mindless because they'll give you drugs to make the pain bearable, but then you really don't have, you know, you really don't have a mind that you can make decisions with because you're just, you know, on, 
on uh, dope. Or you have the pain, and you don't have the dope, and you have a clear mind, but your mind is totally preoccupied with the pain. At that point, there's if, if that's all there is to your life, then if you do that for a while, you've probably learned what you can learn from it, and more of it is probably not useful. It's probably time to go on. So if we extrapolate back to your pet, I'd say it's the same sort of thing. You know, if you think your pet is still has enough quality of life that it can grow, then you probably ought to keep your pet around so that it can do that if it still is making, you know, can still get value from its avatar. Once that value diminishes to not much, very little, if at all, and that's a guess on your part, then it's time to let it go. There's no sense having that consciousness kind of trapped with a dysfunctional avatar that isn't helping it grow any. Let it go on and find another avatar. The next question comes from an MBT forum user, Chris, and this is on animals. If you don't mind sharing, what is your relationship like with your animals? I've seen a dog and cat in some of the videos. And being an animal lover, I would love to hear about them and if they chose you or you chose them. Basically, whatever you can share about your animals. Thank you. Well, I have four dogs and a cat. And up until recently, I had a bird, but the bird uh, is no longer with us. He, uh, he died. And we've always had, as far as I can recall, it was, I, don't, I don't know of any time well when I was in college and in graduate school I don't think I had animals then but any time when I had a place where I could keep an animal I've had one and uh, my wife is like that as well um, if anything she's even more that way than I am you know she she uh, loves dogs and and uh, can't get enough of them I have a sister who has something like uh, presently I think has like uh, 10 or 12 cats so it runs in the family. As children, we always had we always had animals. She she not only has ten or twelve cats, but she's probably also got uh, you know she's got chickens and roosters and anything that comes by her house that that needs help or needs a home or needs food. You know she feeds it and takes care of it and it becomes hers. So she has all sorts of domestic animals, almost like a little farm, just from the the critters that have happened by. You know birds with broken wings and. She had a bird with a club foot that uh, had one, actually one foot, wasn't a club foot, one foot was on backwards, had one foot with the, you know, with the claws coming out like this and the other with it turned around the other way. So I had one going either direction and it just couldn't, couldn't work like that. So it fell out of the tree or whatever and was hopping around and she found it and she uh, kept that bird for years. So anyway, um. Uh, Yes, animals have always been a part of my life, and uh, how do I relate with them? Well, I spend as much time as I can uh, with them in the evenings after Pamela comes home. We basically go and sit down with all the dogs and critters, and it's kind of a pile-on. You know, the uh, they all pile on Pamela first. You know, she sits down on a couch, and she has critters all over her, and that's the way she likes it. And... Uh, I'll sit down next to her, and they, they walk across me and you know, sit in my lap for a while and then move on. And we have one dog that's big, 
So he's not a lap dog, and one that's almost too big to be a lap dog. He's about 18, 20 pounds. That kind of gets you out of the lap dog. My big dog's probably about 70 pounds, and he's uh, you know way past the point of being a lap dog. And then two of them are little dogs that are lap dogs. And the cat, of course, is a lap cat. So we uh, just hang out with our critters and uh, pet them and and. Uh, up close and personal uh, pretty much every every evening and while we're doing that my wife and I often listen to an audiobook so we sit listen to audiobooks and play with our critters and that's kind of an every evening sort of thing um, but I think critters need to to do more than just live in a house and be with the people if I gave my dogs the choice they would never be more than three feet from the feet of you know of one of us they just be that way all the time. And I don't know that that's really good for them, too. They need to go outside and play and run around and bark and, you know, do what do what they do naturally as dogs and not just be, uh, you know, couch potatoes or, uh, you know, hang around our feet. That's what they would do if left on their own. So I do put them outside and during the day, and they, they can come in and go. I got a little uh, a door that goes up and down, sort of like uh, uh, the doors at the freight you know, when a truck back, backs up to the to the dock loading dock, you got a door that uh, goes up. I got a door like that. When they have magnets on their collar and they get close to it, the, the sensor senses the magnet and, and uh, runs the door up with an electric motor, and uh, then keeps it up for about five seconds and then lets it back down again. So they can go in and out as they please, and they are um, they are not fed they are not fed by um, giving them a certain amount at a certain time, they free feed. They always have food and water. It's, it's an infinite supply of food and water. And because they've always grown up from puppies with infinite supply of food and water, none of them are greedy. None of them uh, you know, want to hoard the food bowl. And none of them are overweight. They just eat what they want when they want it. And typically, they don't eat all at one time. They graze all during the day. They eat a little bit now, a little bit later. And and uh, so it's always there, and they uh, never. I've never had a fat dog or cat that you know that were overweight. They're all real good weight, so they can come in and eat. They can come in and get out of the hot. They can come in and get out of the cold. They can go outside and bark and run. They've got about um, I don't know about two thousand square feet of space that they can run around in, and uh, they they spend a lot of time out there woofing and playing and chasing each other and chewing on bones and the other things that dogs do and then they basically come in and you know late afternoons and evenings and spend with the people so that's kind of a dog's life in my house you know it's uh, we're close to them they're they're part of our family they're like kids in in that sense and we always had them when our kids I got I have four children and and uh, two boys two girls and they always had a, there was no time during that that they didn't have you know, multiple pets around the house. So they all have pets now as they get into places where they can, they can uh, keep them. So I guess that's just our family. We are, we are pet lovers. At one time, when our kids were little, we had lots of pets. We had lizards and snakes and hedgehogs and uh, what is it? What are the guinea pigs and r mice and rats? And oh, we had diff several different kinds of lizards. 
We even had bugs. You know, we've had all sorts of things because my kids would get interested in something, and then they'd have one for however long those things last. Some some of those aren't don't have real long lifespans, but yeah. So we've had almost every imaginable pet. We've had sugar gliders, which are little uh, uh, marsupials that are like sort of like flying squirrels, but they're small, about the size of a big mouse, and have a little uh, pocket like a marsupial should. And I come from Australia. We had sugar gliders for a while. So you name it, it's been in this house. We, uh, we're very pet friendly here. All right, Tom, there's another question from one of the MBT forum users. Kawa, on transplant cell memory, there are many cases where a person receiving an organ transplant suddenly shows certain personality traits of the donor. How would you explain this transplant cell memory from an MBT perspective? Okay, well, the body sets constraints on, what, on the data stream that the consciousness can get. Okay, that's the function of the body. This is a virtual reality. It's a virtual, a virtual body, so it's a virtual transplant into a virtual body, right? And we have the rule set that, that uh, has allowed this virtual body to evolve from the rule set. So the data stream can only contain things that meet the constraints of the body. So let's say, uh, you know, an, an example I often use, if you get hit over the head with, with a pipe and that, head, that, that hit does brain damage, well, that's changed the constraints of the avatar. Now, you, as consciousness, maybe have uh, just lost memory or maybe you as a consciousness can no longer get your avatar to walk very well because it drags one leg because that's what the brain damage does. It's not that the... It's not that the brain is actually um, making choices. The brain is just a virtual brain. The brain's just also just data. It's a virtual brain. All the thinking, all the choices are made by the consciousness. But the, the avatar, the brain, if you will, and its limitations limit the data stream that the consciousness has to deal with. So when that uh, avatar gets hits over the head with a pipe, now the uh, consciousness has limitations on the data stream that it can get. It may lose feeling in one arm. Okay, that's limitations on the data stream. It may not be able to make certain muscles work or thoughts happen. It may lose memory. It may change its personality. That's because it's got new constraints now, according to the rule set, because of what happens to the avatar. Okay, now you have a body, and that body is working in person A, or that you have a body with body parts, and let's say we have body part in person A, and the body parts are part of a of a system, right? They have evolved to be to work together in a system. They, uh, you know, and, and they all work between person and person. I mean, everybody's heart does pretty much the same job, right? It's it's a muscle that contracts and and uh, squeezes squeezes a chamber which pushes blood. That's what a heart does. But everybody's different. Everybody's biochemistry is, is a little different. We're not all just, you know, identical. We, uh, 
are de depending on what we eat, how we exercise, what we do, our thoughts, our stress levels, our physiology accommodates that. And all of the organs that work together to produce that, according to the rule set, they all adjust and modify themselves and adapt to the situation that they have to work with. Okay, so they're all different. So now you take um, a kidney out of or a heart out of A and transplant it into B. Well, you've got an organ A that is used to working with person A in person A's environment with person A's biochemistry, with person A's stress levels, with person A's attitudes. Remember, the mind leads, the body follows. So you've now you've you've got this this uh, physical thing that is a virtual heart. It works according to the rule set, but the rule set, how it expresses itself is different in each individual. Like I said, same rule set, but the rule set can express itself in a lot of different ways. There's lots of different ways things can adapt and work. That's why all of us, all you know, seven billion of us aren't twins, right? We have different ways that uh, our uh, chromosomes and things can go together to produce different things. So you take this heart that is in configuration A, working with biochemistry A and stress A and brain A, if you will, it's consciousness A, and it has adapted to that, and now you put it in B. Well, there's a little bit of a learning curve there. Eventually, that heart A will probably um, evolve, or will we say uh, adapt, to person B, and person B's biochemistry, and person B's stress, and person B's consciousness. But at first, it's going to be more A-like than B-like. And because of that, it's going to affect those things around it, which will affect those things around it. So you've put something foreign in there, and it's going to have an effect. So some of the characteristics of A that were embodied in that biochemistry and in that data that was that virtual heart are now implanted into, you know, if you like, you can say you took some of A's code and put it into B, and now that code has to adapt. You know, code being a metaphor. Don't take me literally there. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a metaphor. Now that has to adapt, and during that adaption, it wouldn't be surprising that it, uh, you know, create some A-like uh, artifacts just because that's that's the kind of thing it is. That's the chemistry it's got. That's the, what it's used to. So some of those A-like artifacts may come out in terms of being expressed in terms of actions or, or things said or things felt that uh, the person has. So that's why, that's how I would that I would uh, describe that from an MBT point of view. It's, uh, I would guess that when those organs, from my viewpoint, or from the MBT viewpoint, when those organs get transplanted, you'd have the maximum amount of that transference from A to B, from anus, from being more like A to being more like B, you'd have most of that difference initially right away, in the first week or two or three that the transplant's there. Come back five years later, and you probably see that that will have disappeared and will have, because that organ will have adapted into, from anus into venus. And 
in as much as it can it can adapt to Venus, and it probably can in in time. So MBT would no, I don't know. I haven't studied that. Uh, you're telling me this, and I'm just accepting that it's true that people do have these uh, these things. So given that that's true, MBT would predict that it would be more true in the beginning and less true the further you go out. And if that person then lives long enough with that uh, transplant organ, that the, all the anus would eventually uh, you know, become venous. And it's only an event that starts early and, and dies out with time, not something that's, that's permanent. So, so if, my, you know, if my assessment's right, then there's some data that you can check to see whether it works out that way. That's, uh, that's the way I would, that I would describe it. So it's just a, uh, it's a, it's a matter of a adaption. You know, every heart's not exactly identical to every other heart. They've all got their uniqueness to them. And some of that uniqueness has to do with the consciousness and the stress and, you know, all the rest of that stuff that makes the avatar the way the avatar is. The avatar is unique as the consciousness is unique. The avatar is unique by the rule set and the consciousness is unique because it's, you know, it's an individual. No two avatar. No, I mean, the consciousness is unique because no two consciousness have had the same set of experience and learning and and whatever. So every, it's unique in both ways, in the rule set and with the consciousness. And some of that consciousness uniqueness is going to be expressed in those parts. And we can think of that in terms of you know part of that uniqueness of consciousness would have to do with how much fear it has, how much love it has, how much stress it has. Uh, all these things also affect the way the avatar works. Those are so the mind and the body are an interactive pair, you know, that interact and, and affect each other. So that's why anus goes with the part, with the heart or the kidney or whatever's going, but it probably wears off as it adapts. The next question is beyond genetics, beyond physical attributes you were just talking about. Oliver's question is on odd similarities with identical twins. Dr. Tom Bouchard measured hundreds of cases of identical twins who were separated at birth through adoption and didn't know about each other for decades, but still showed identical patterns in behavior. In one particular case, for example, both marrying a first wife named Linda, divorcing her and marrying a second wife named Betty, naming their children the same way, choosing the same job, having the same hobbies, having a dog with the same name, hating baseball, smoking the same brand of cigarettes, drinking the same brand of beer, having two heart attacks, and choosing the same area for their yearly vacation, all without knowing about each other. With genetics, we could explain the physical aspects of similarities, but how would you explain the aspects that go beyond that and what's the point for the larger consciousness system to nudge identical twins in such odd ways? Or is it just a glitch in the matrix? Well, I think we'd have to... Uh, uh, I'd like to look at that research uh, in a little more depth before I would give a complete answer, but let me, let me explain, uh, explain that. They're obviously making choices, which involves... A consciousness and intent. You know, these aren't just physical things, as you point out, uh, Oliver. It's not just that their noses are both long, you know, and they're, you know, and they uh, they look they look similar, but they are making similar choices. 
And the choice making is the consciousness. So why are they doing that? Well, there could be several reasons that uh, comes to mind. Um, one is that you could have a consciousness with both avatars. That's a possibility. One consciousness is going to have more than one avatar. It's not a it's not the most typical thing, but it does happen. It's probably a five sigma kind of a kind of a thing. Um, that would be one. So then you would see if they both had a if they were both uh, had the same uh, individuated unit of consciousness, even if they had two separate free will awareness units, you would probably tend to get a whole lot of the same choices because you were starting from uh, fundamentally the same. Uh, you know, the same material, the same quality. So that's one explanation of why it could be. But that, uh, I would say, would, would probably not occur in all twins. That would occur in some twins. So then I'd want to look at this research and say, is this something that all twins that are separated uh, early on and then live their life separately, do they all make very similar choices like that? Or does it only happen like five sigma, you know? Some, you know, that sort of thing. And if that's the case, then I'd say it, it could be that it's, it's one consciousness and uh, two bodies. The other thing could be that while those twins were gestating, they were obviously very close and very connected, as twins tend to be after they're, they're born. They, they tend to be able to read each, read each other's minds as kind of a typical twin behavior where they... they uh, are very much connected and empathetic to their their uh, exact twin. Well, in that case, we know all consciousness is netted, and all conscious netted, and that netting has to do with intent. You're netted to the things that you intend to communicate with. Well, a twin, even though it doesn't intellectually know that it has a twin, it probably knows... You know, uh, because it spent nine months, you know, um, in the same fluid sac and had a connection at that level. And that would be still, it's an awareness. It's aware. So there would have been a very strong connection, perhaps, between two consciousnesses who were twins. We know twins that live together also share attitudes often things that aren't just physical. So this could be that they just kept that up. They kept the connection, and they were aware that their twin had a dog named Rover. And when they got a dog, they think, hmm, Rover would be a good name because, you know, that's uh, just kind of comes to them intuitively, and that they were just sharing this information over the, you know, over the net, if you will, because all consciousness are netted. So that's another way of looking at it. Now, in that case... I would think it might be uh, a little more than the five sigma, but it wouldn't be as exact. It would be maybe it, there's more differences creep in. They, they may be out of 50 things. They may do, uh, um, you know, 40 of them the same, but 10 of them different. Whereas if they were two, if they were the same consciousness, maybe they'd do 49 that were the same, you know, and only one that was different. So there's different possibilities of, of uh, how that might happen. And I'd like to I'd like to see whether that's all identical twins that are split up like that, or whether it's just some and about how many, 
and see if that kind of is in consonance with about the off, how often you see uh, multiple uh, uh, multiple bodies with a consciousness or that you might expect for really good friends, really good connections in the womb for nine months, uh, that the consciousnesses have kind of become friends, if you like, and stay in touch with each other, even though that's below the below the intellect. They're not intellectually doing it. So those would be the two ways I'd, I'd think that might explain that. But more data would be required to see if that was the case. Now, if it happens with all identical twins, then... You know the the um, the idea that it's one uh, one consciousness, two bodies, probably would be less likely in that case. If it happens to all of them, then it would e then it would tend to be more of a of a, a kinship generated in the womb or within the first six months of life, however long it was that they were together. That kind of lasts because they're just to make a frequency metaphor. They're just on the same frequency. They just you know, are their their uh, their being are so similar? They're uh, they're very close from the time they spent together. They're connected psychically as opposed to you know as as well as physically. So I don't know. Do you have any any comeback on that or any any more on the data? Uh, what I can tell you is that. It was only one case where so many aspects matched, and in most other cases there were only some parts which were obviously there was obviously some connection, but it was not as clear as in that one case. So that was only one case where so many things matched up. Yeah, that could very well be one consciousness, could be, or it very well could be a very tight connection. They just uh, <laughs> they grew very close uh, at a very early age and stayed that way intuitively even though they were not aware of each other intellectually, but they were aware of each other at the being level, not at the intellectual level. Certainly possible when we're all netted, you know, that that might work that way. But I see it's not, from what you said then, it's not necessary. It doesn't have to always be that close. They could just go off on their own separate ways and be two different people that happen to look exactly alike. The next question comes from Terry from the MBT Forum. He asks, what is the purpose of psychopaths? I've had to deal with these ultra-low quality of consciousness individuals all my life. The closest analogy I can make is that they are like black holes of self-interest. They will suck every last bit of time, love, money, resources, and energy out of a person. I've seen enough of them to realize that they seem to enjoy the destruction of good people with empathy. In many cases, such as torture, they seem to get a boost of energy from their destructive practices. My research has indicated that about 6% of the human population are primary psychopaths, with a larger percentage of the population being infected by their presence. They know they are different and recognize each other in network. You can watch them recognize a fellow path as they react like they've met an old friend. The only thing they seem to respect is a bigger psychopath, which it seems is counterproductive to developing a higher quality of consciousness. What role do these human avatar black holes play in the scheme of things? <laughs> well, this person sounds like they're speaking from experience. Um, 
it's not, you know, the idea is what's the purpose of psychopaths kind of is a question that, that sort of has the assumption on the front end that, that we are all put here for a specific purpose. You know, that uh, if there's psychopaths here, then uh, the system says, well, we're going to have to have at least, what was that, six out of 100? You know, we, we're going to at least have 6% psychopaths. Um, that's good because of dot, dot, dot. It doesn't work like that. You see, it's, it's, that's just a very low quality of consciousness that is in denial that they are low quality of consciousness. So low quality of consciousness that, that denies that low quality exists or that they are, then it's, it's like uh, the cognitive dissonance. You tend to throw good after bad if you can admit that what's bad is bad. If you can't admit that your, you know, that your uh, uh, investment was a bad one, then you just keep throwing more and more money at it because you don't want to admit that you made a mistake. Surely it's going to turn around, you see. So you keep throwing more money at it because you don't want to say, gee, that was a dumb idea. I should not have done that. So that's the idea of cognitive dissonance. You will do things that are even not good for you in order to not admit that you made a mistake or that uh, you, know, you weren't clever with your choices. So that's what happens when you have a very low quality of consciousness in denial is that it... It switches, you know, kind of good and bad around, and bad becomes good because they are what they are, and that's good, and they're going to be even more of it that way. So they they tend to grow themselves in a negative direction. You can also call that a negative spiral in evolution, where you evolve, you keep evolving, you know, lower and lower. It just happens. It's just it's just the way it is. It's a result. It's not that they're, they are produced for an effect. It's just the natural result of free will. When you have free will, then you allow bad choices, not only good choices. The system allowed only good choices that wouldn't be free will. You couldn't learn under that condition. You need free will to learn because the, the, the uh, choices have to be real. They have to be authentic from the individual. They can't be enforced from above. So you have free will allows learning, and some people just devolve down that downward spiral into where they are very low quality and proud of it. Proud of it means they're in denial that it's really low quality and it's a, it's a terrible place to be. Terrible place? No, not me. It's not terrible. It's good. That's the way I am, and I'm proud of it. You see, it's that sort of thing. So it's just an artifact of, of having free will. And if there's... In our culture, given the, the general lowness of, of uh, consciousness quality, 6% is probably not an unreasonable number. If our consciousness of quality were much lower, it would probably be 10%. If it were much higher, it might only be 1%. You see, it's just it's the way we are, and we get about that many because in our culture, that's about how many people end up uh, de-evolving to that point. Now, are those people happy people? They generally are not. They're generally very miserable people. Do they pretend to be happy and pretend to get joy from misery and so on? Yes, they do. Um, but that doesn't make them happy people. 
You know, sadists aren't happy people, even if they, quote, unquote, enjoy hurting people. They're really miserable people. They are, you know, failures of evolution. And they know that at a, at a fundamental level. And that's what, you know, their denial of that is what drives them on to be as mean-spirited as they are. So it's just got to live with it. They're there because, you know, and there's as many of them as there are because we are the way we are. If we were all much higher evolved, then there'd be much fewer of them. And if we were all really highly evolved, there probably wouldn't be any of them. It'd be very, very rare that anybody dropped down into that downward spiral and, and got to, to a pathological uh, um, level of entropy. So just, we just have to deal with them. We have to live with them and... Uh, and interact with them when when we have to, and avoid them when we can. That's uh, part of a part of the environment we've created for ourselves. The next question also comes from the MBT forum member Brian. I have a question about life events that create challenges and opportunities for us. You've indicated that those in positions of power are generally not so different than the rest of us, which can be a difficult truth in itself. Nevertheless, if we use MBT, we're looking to decrease entropy in our social interactions and remain focused on solutions to create an environment for growth. In talking to others, it seems so many authentic, evolving people find themselves in a position where they must deal with a high entropy consciousness, perhaps through a, I think they mean perhaps low con entropy consciousness here, perhaps through a malicious lawsuit, a controlling boss, or something else, but they don't immediately see growth opportunity. As you have said, if we focus our response on manipulating outcome, we're not growing. Instead, we should let go of outcome and question our intent and why are we acting the way we do. My question is that if life events become so intense that despite our efforts to keep our fears in check, these events overwhelm our consciousness. We lose the ability to mindfully question our own intent and we sense over time our decision space is getting smaller as often happens when dealing with controlling people. Could you go into some depth as to how the opportunity for growth might be found in unwanted interactions with these powerful people. Okay. Uh, well, we'll start with where we just left off, which is if you, if you have a choice to be around such people, such very high entropy people, uh, you probably should choose not to be around them. Okay. If, if it's somebody that, uh, if your neighbor is a very high entropy person, then you just don't visit your neighbor very often. You, you know, you uh, don't, uh, interact with them any more than you absolutely have to. And then when you interact with them, it's all just business. And you conduct your business in a business-like manner, and you don't go into depth. You don't discuss personal things. You know, you just keep it a, a shallow uh, business-like interaction. Well, we can't always do that. Sometimes it's our boss, and we have to interact with them. Uh, sometimes it's our spouse, and we have to interact with them. Sometimes it's maybe a child or a parent or somebody else that we have to interact with. And when you do, it is very challenging. But, you know, a big challenge 
enables you to make a big gain. A small challenge enables you to make a small gain. So dealing with such a person when you have to is a big opportunity. Not to let them drag you to their level. So if they do things, let's say that are just mean-spirited, they just things or do things just because they enjoy giving you a hard time or hurting you or being obstreperous or uh, keeping you from uh, succeeding in your job or something. They just are in the in the way and unpleasant. Well, you have to, if it's their boss, of course, you can take another job. It may take you a year or two, but you might want to look for another job, get another boss, transfer to a different division, you know, do some way solve that problem. Assuming you can't solve that problem, and until you can solve that problem, you just have to deal with it. And what the mistake people make there is they they take it personally. Okay, somebody is mean to them or, or, or nasty or does something to hurt them. They take it personally. They're doing this to me. How dare they do this to me? It's not nice. It's not fair. Well, all of that is ego talking. You see, you can't, well, I can't say you can't. Obviously, you can take it personally, but you shouldn't take it personally. You should say, this is the way that person is. They are mean-spirited. They really don't like me for some reason. Um, so they're going to try to make my life miserable, but I'm not going to let that make my life miserable. I'm not going to choose to be miserable. You see, you get to make choices. It's not that makes me miserable. Oh, woe is me. What can I do? It's I refuse to let that person make me miserable. I choose to be happy. I choose to be productive. Now, you may never get a raise, and you may have all the you know, the, the bad work in the office because you may get all the, the tough stuff that you have to stay up all night to do and, and other people don't. Well, that's just your thing to do and do it gracefully because that's, that's what's been served up to you. So you do it the best you can. You try to move on and, and get out of that spot if you can, but if you can't, you do what you can. Don't let it aggravate you. Say, it's not me, it's them. So that's an important thing. If you take it personally, you start feeling sorry for yourself. You start feeling that life is unfair to you and it shouldn't be that way. And, and uh, you know, you want somebody to step in and fix it for you. And none of that is helpful. All that does is feed the problem. It just makes it worse. The person's more likely to give you more crud, more uh, negative stuff if you act that way. If you just, well, it's what I have to do. Now, because I have to interact with this person now for whatever the reason is, then do it with joy. Do it with caring. Okay, boss, I stayed up all night. Here it is. Hope you like it. See, instead of being angry with the boss because he made you do this two weekends in a row and the other people in the office haven't had to do it at all, you just need to uh, not let that ego get wrapped around the problem. Choose to not be angry, choose to not be upset, choose to not feel sorry for yourself, and then your life will be just fine. You can deal with it. Now, you don't. You may not want to deal with it forever. You may not uh, feel like that's reasonable. You'd rather go someplace else where you do have a possibility of a promotion. Well, then start looking for another job, another division, a different boss. That is not impossible. Maybe that's hard, too. Well, you, you know, you... 
live with what you have to live with, but don't let it make you start making low-quality decisions because they're making low-quality choices. If you let it drag you down, if you take it personally, if you feel sorry for yourself, if you get your ego involved in it, then you will be pulled down to their level and then you're in a soap opera. You know, soap opera is defined as relationships in which somebody is constantly pouring, you know, difficulty, hand-wringing, and poison. You know, and it never goes away. You'll be in a soap opera with your boss or with your spouse or with your, you know, Uncle Fred or whoever it is that you're stuck with. Now, if you're not stuck with them, like I say, if it's your next-door neighbor, well, just don't go hang out at the neighbor's fence and, you know, try to start up conversations. Just try to be very polite and professional with your dealings with such people, but don't get close. And uh, don't, uh, you know, get involved with them if you can help it. When you can't help it, you need to rise above it and not choose to be upset and not choose to get your ego wrapped around it. It's a big challenge. It's hard to do. But it will give you a much greater step forward in the evolution game if you're able to do it. Remember, nobody makes your choices for you. You make all your own choices. And if you choose to be um, upset and you choose to get into self-pity and you choose to feel like life's unfair to you and you don't deserve this, etc., well, then you are choosing you know, ego and you're choosing fear and then you will get the result of that. Your life will also go down in a downward spiral because you will be, you will have a lot of anxiety, you will be upset, you get a lot of angst. All of that will hurt your health. Um, it'll just, you know, you yourself will go down in a spiral if you let that pull you with it. You got to rise above it. Not easy. Easy for me to tell you that. A lot harder for you to do it. But that's what you have to do, and that's the challenge. If you can't get away from it, then the challenge is to deal with it. Deal with it in a way that you grow, not deal with it in a way that it makes you ill and that you, know, you uh, decrease the quality of your consciousness.